We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening, Gavin. And Klaus Badenhagen, who reports from Taiwan for German media. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing an honour guard visit to the presidential office for the island's Asian Games team. Former President Chen Shui-bian speaking his mind in an interview that, well, wasn't really an interview. Taiwan students in Norway are looking to sue over a name change, a hike in the minimum wage, and how dining out is once big again. But we'll begin with the government last Friday, stoking controversy after the Ministry of Justice executed Li Hongji at the second Kaohsiung prison. Now, Li was on death row for the 2014 killing of his ex-wife and daughter, and his was the first execution since President Tsai Ing-wen took office on May the 20th of 2016. It also came a month after Tsai appointed a new justice minister, that being Tsai Ching-shang. Now, according to the Ministry of Justice, Li was executed because he murdered his ex-wife in a public place surrounded by witnesses and consistently showed no remorse for the crime. Human rights groups, though, have condemned the execution, saying that it was timed to boost the DPP's chances in November's local elections, with the Taiwan Association for Human Rights accusing the ruling DPP of failing to live up to its promise to abolish or phase out the death penalty. And the European Union also expressed its opposition to the use of capital punishment and said that it wishes that Taiwan would immediately reintroduce the moratorium on capital punishment. Now, the German, a German, Klaus is here, a yep. German, a German parliamentary group also came out and condemned the execution and said that it was a step backwards in Taiwan's actually working to phase out the death penalty. Now, the last execution carried out in Taiwan prior to that was on May the 10th of 2016 when Zhang Jie was executed for killing four people and injuring 24 others on the Taipo metro system in 2014. And if you're interested, there are currently 42 to inmates on death row in Taiwan. So, Ross, lots of questions about this execution. That's right. Part of it is a question of how the judicial system operates, and partly, as you mentioned, it's a political issue. Clearly, uh, there is a political element to the decision, even if the government denies it and tries to uh, give the appearance that this was simply a procedural matter, that the appeals process in the courts had run their course. An internal review committee at the Ministry of Justice had done its job before forwarding it to the Minister of Justice for his signature. However, the political reality of this is if the Minister of Justice had a view against capital punishment, and frankly, if the Premier, William Lai, or the President, Tsai Ing-wen, also did not wish for this to proceed, they would have informed the Justice Minister not to sign the execution warrant. That is the reality, and no matter what one's views are of capital punishment, the performance of the current government, we have to frame the conversation within that reality. So as you pointed out, Gavin, it is viewed by some as a political decision simply to gain more votes in the local election or the national election that's going to follow 13 months after that. Uh, Or another way to look at it is rather than gaining votes, it's a way to take an issue out of the hands of the opposition. So although there isn't really a serious crime problem in Taiwan, there has been have been a number of very high-profile, grisly murder cases where uh, 
the perpetrator of the crime did it uh, in a very horrific way, often using knives and, and uh, cases involving dismemberment as opposed to uh, something that uh, was a murder, but without this element of uh, dismembering the victim's body. So these cases have attracted an enormous amount of public attention. And then, of course, it's easy for the opposition to say, well, you don't want to do the death penalty uh, and, and you're soft on crime. So there, the, it's a valid criticism to say that the decision was made uh, in part to take this issue off the agenda, take away a talking point from the Guomindang heading into election season. And um, you have to admit that Tsai Ing-wen never went on record actually saying, I'm going to abolish the death penalty or there will be no executions under my watch. I mean, she didn't say that in the 2016 campaign. She didn't even say it back in the 2012 campaign. She always avoided that subject and said it's got to do with the um, public opinion. It's not an easy subject. We need more discussion. So you cannot accuse her of going back on her word here. Um, not like in the case of I don't know, marriage equality, for example. But Klaus, I, but Klaus, sorry to interrupt you. At a minimum, she has gone back on the moratorium that her government had imposed yeah, she from, did. from and, 2016. And that's, why, that's why international partners are disappointed, rightly so. So um, you could make a point that in case of marriage equality, the government is disappointing their own um, domestic supporters, a large group of their uh, voters. And in terms of uh, death penalty, they have now managed to disappoint some important international allies, namely the European Union. But isn't uh, you're saying that she didn't specifically say say she was for abolishment, or uh, she said we have to listen to all uh, you know society opinion and all the stakeholders and build a consensus? Isn't that a bit of uh, trying to escape confronting the issue, Klaus? Because uh, clearly, her party historically. And leaders in the party, you know, significant personalities going back 30 years to the formation of the DPP. This has generally been a party led by people who have consistently called for the abolishment of the death penalty. It's not like she's for it. It's not like she, she's ever said, like, we need to use the death penalty as a form of punishment, as a form of delivering justice to the victim's families. So it's not like she's a supporter of it, right? Well, I haven't seen the death penalty being a part of any DPP platform. I mean, um, Chen Shui-bian didn't uh, abolish it. He had some years of a moratorium back then. But I after, think, after I think, his government executed it, uh, 49, you know, yeah, something like yeah. 45 people. Right. So um, I think a large part of the DPP voters are actually socially conservative. Elderly people, they are the ones who will, in surveys, say, no way we want to get rid of the death penalty. So the party knows that, and they don't want to make these people unhappy. So it's a political decision. They yeah. fear their voters would depart the DPP well, for the KMT over this issue? Their voters, or as you said, the, they don't want to give the KMT ammunition to attack them. I mean, Okay, I, but their, their leaders, part of being leadership, is, is making tough decisions. So yeah, if they I, have their courage of convictions, they should have abolished it. Look, I mean, look. ultimately what it comes down to is, just like with marriage equality, this is a party with an overwhelming majority in the legislative unit in Taiwan's parliament. And if they wanted to uh, abolish the death penalty, just like with marriage equality, if they wanted to legislate marriage equality, they wanted to abolish the death penalty, they basically, they could do whatever they want in the I, legislature. I agree. I agree. It's... it's um, <laughs> part of the job description of a government to make unpopular decisions, and governments are making unpopular decisions all the time, including this one. But in the case of um, capital punishment and marriage equality, they shy away from it. And Gavin, there, there's another significant issue here, which is you mentioned the 42 people who are on death row. You mentioned the Zheng Jie, who is the final execution under the Ma Zhou government, and it, literally in its final days. Uh, why this 
particular uh, criminal, this convict? What... That was a question I had, of course, because he did talk about this in the week. And, of course, he did kill his wife and daughter. And It was grisly, as I said. Grisly murder. But, I mean, do you think the government, if maybe a drug dealer that killed a drug dealer was next on the list to be executed, the government would have gone ahead with that? Or they were looking for something bigger? Splashy. Well, clearly, they were know. looking for something bigger. Ta- and, Taiwan know, hasn't executed drug dealers in I don't know how many. No, decades. but the example the example Gavin used was a drug dealer shoots another drug dealer oh, over okay. a deal gone yeah. bad, oh, right. which uh, doesn't capture the public attention the way this this murder yeah, or some I mean, of the they, other grisly murders. They made did. sure to pick the one case that was to be least controversial. Right? Everybody says this is a really there's a long line of people with pitchforks and knives saying I'll be the first in line to to carry out the execution. But speaking as as a, and, and a, he was he was caught red-handed. I mean, this was not. The there's, look, there's no doubt. doubt there's that. no doubt he's guilty. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I do support the use of capital punishment. Um, but the the issue, and I, I'll speak as a lawyer here, is uh, there's something flawed when you have um, people jump the queue and then you say, "Well, it was this for political purposes," rather than some of the other people who are on death row, who've been on death row for many, many years, as the media has reported in, you know, now in the weeks since the execution, uh, you know, sort of uh, analyzing who these other 42 people are and why was this one picked and not other people. You know, most of them, in my opinion, again, as, as somebody who believes capital punishment can be appropriate in some circumstance, a lot of those people on death row are equally deserving of this penalty. Yeah. Well, on the other hand, one of these people just got exonerated after he had spent more than a decade on death row, and even back in 2000, 2006, the uh, Supreme Court had still upheld his conviction, and now it has been proven that he's innocent. So. Well, well, then we could start with the ones who were caught red-handed. Uh, but, but my point is, uh, as a matter of the, the, the fair imposition of justice and ensuring the integrity of the process and, and the use of capital punishment, which obviously uh, requires a very careful review of the facts of the case. Uh, all these cases uh, generally have gone through multiple levels of appeal. There's an internal review committee at the Ministry of Justice. Finally, the signature on the death warrant by the Minister of Justice, him or herself. Uh, so, uh, again, from the in- from from the perspective of the the fair imposition of justice, uh, having someone jump the queue this way. If it's for political purposes, oh, you know, we picked the guy who murdered his wife and his child, was caught red-handed, he did it in public, as the Ministry of Justice cited in their press release. Uh, I'm not comfortable with that uh, as, a, as a lawyer. Same I mean, that's, thing that happened in 2016 with the MIT killer, right? That's right. He also yeah. jumped the queue because uh, just like with this case, his execution was carried out with, within uh, two, two to three years of, of when the crime, that, that crime occurred in 2014, executed uh, two years later in, in the spring of 2016. Uh, the, this, this is not right. Uh, so uh, we, we, if we're going to continue to use capital punishment, it should be meted out fairly. And uh, I say you know, line them up um, for the ones who are deserving and their cases have, have been, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the, the way the Ma government did it, right? They did execute five people on one day or six people on one day, although well, that's also to mitigate the criticism from the international community as well. Right. So, I mean, Klaus, do you think Taiwan will ever abolish the death penalty? I think a moratorium is the option that's more likely. And I mean, look at South Korea, for example, really interesting case comparable to Taiwan in many aspects. They still have the death penalty on the books. People still get the death sentence, but their moratorium has been in place since 1997. And I don't see South Koreans taking to the streets protesting against it. Some people, of course, will once in a while say they are unhappy with that. But uh, 
this has held across many changes of government in that country. So well, I, I don't see a reason why that shouldn't be possible. Klaus, you make a really good point about neighboring countries, but then we also have to look at Japan because Taiwan, um, uh, on many issues of governance, looks to uh, Japan, um, and especially in the uh, judicial system here, a lot of the laws and, and the processes are, are similar to Japan, uh, as well as to Germany, as, as I'm sure you know. Uh, Executions were carried out this spring in Japan, yeah, you're right, yeah. and that gets a lot of media attention. It happened to be very high profile, involved the um, 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 Shinryo, uh religious cult and, and the terrible crimes they did. Uh, so when people here in Taiwan see that Japan carried out some executions, there's going to be even more public demand yeah, for executions I mean, here. They're not going to look to Korea as a model, uh, as a place but, that has but, a moratorium. You know that Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwan's government likes to look at international trends. They even often take that as justification, and you need to say that... The United States, Japan, and Taiwan are the outliers among democratic nations in the world in that they are still executing people. Right, we shall move on from the execution of people to the celebration of people, that being the celebration of the island's Asian Games team. Well, they have popped back to the island this week after doing quite well in Jakarta, and basically they won 17 gold, 19 silver, and 31 bronze at the Asian Games, and they were greeted back in Taiwan for a bit of a bash at the presidential office. Lots of pomp and circumstance, and even a military honour guard. Now, before they'd even come back, one of their aeroplanes, as it was flying back, and it just arrived in Taiwan's air defence identification zone, was greeted by two F-16 fighter jets. Now, of course, it was night time, and how would they see the aeroplane? Well, the presidential office came up with a great idea that the F-16s would fire shells off, so the, they, would sh they would be lit up in the night sky, and the athletes could see them as they were jetting their way home. So, Ross, there we go, pomp and circumstance in the Asian Games. Do you think the F-16 maybe was a bit too much of a touch there? Well, maybe they could have used some of the flares to light up the sky that uh, have been reported as part of a $60 million U.S. dollar uh, uh, procurement scandal in the military this week. Uh, but we'll leave that for another discussion. Uh, well, arguably, this is an inappropriate use of military resources, uh, the primary mission of the Air Force is to defend the, the airspace of Taiwan, and they face a daily threat from uh, threatening incursions and fly-arounds by the PRC Air Force. So uh, from their perspective of military preparedness and resources, I, I would rather that the Air Force was not used in such a, a ceremonial uh, public relations function. I, I think that's just uh, a bit dangerous um, and, and not a good use of resources. And a very bad precedent as well. We also see something similar when presidents make overseas trips, and the, we see a lot of news that the F-16s or the Mirages or the Jiangjingo fighters have escorted the president's plane as it departs Taiwan's airspace for an overseas trip. I don't think the public really cares, and they see it for what it is. It's just a public relations exercise. Also, you create the precedent. I mean, there's so many sports tournaments all the time. So how many gold medals do you need to have two F-16 fighter jets? Obviously, if, obviously, if it was only three gold medals, would it have been one jet? Obviously 17. Well, Gavin, that, that raises an interesting point because uh, the Taiwan team did have a very good performance in this Asian Games. Our congratulations certainly should go out to them. Uh, but the media, and I think to some extent the government as well, especially going into an election, here we go with the elections again, uh, they're, they're making it out to be this uh, greatest performance ever. Sure, on the on the gross medal count, it might be more than past Asian Games, but... If, uh, that 
but the second best performance in terms of gold medal count at the Asian Games. Right, is- but but Gavin, if you look at the medal table, the total medal table, uh, Taiwan's performance at Asian Games um, is consistently in the lower half of the top ten, seventh, eighth, ninth, uh, and this time was was no different. So one of the reasons why there's more medals is there's more events, uh, but but generally at the Asian Games, Taiwan has has a respectable performance in the medal table versus all the other participating countries and territories. And uh, this event was no different. If they broke the top five, then we could say that this was a historic performance. What they did say, though, and this was the president, she expressed her thanks to the sports administration and other agencies for coordinating logistical support for the athletes. And she said that that support has set a benchmark for future events, including the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. How hard is it to book some hotel rooms and air tickets, Gavin? But actually, uh, notwithstanding what the president said, in fact, one of Taiwan's most prominent athletes at the Asian Games, uh, Dai Jing, the, the badminton player, went public with her complaints about the logistical planning. So clearly there's some inconsistency with what President Tsai views as excellent logistical planning and what one of Taiwan's uh, most successful athletes went public with her complaints as far as uh, the location and the quality of the hotel, uh, especially when she to her credit, I think, she put it in the context of where other teams were staying. So she wasn't just looking at the Taiwan team and where they were staying in isolation. And again, to her credit, she also said in her her public complaints that she had raised these issues with the appropriate logistical planners that President Tsai had praised very early, months ago. She didn't just raise this last week or a week before the games or when they arrived, and she discovered that they they were far away. Uh, in fact, then she wound up booking her own hotel room. Uh, fortunately, she has the benefit of corporate sponsorships, unlike most of the athletes uh, on the Taiwan team who don't. Uh, so there clearly is a bit of a inconsistency between uh, what, what the government is saying in, in patting itself on the back and congratulating itself for a job well done and what the athletes are saying. I really think that... Kevin just wanted us to talk about the Tokyo 2020 name change referendum, maybe. Is that why you brought it up? <laughs> oh, sorry, I was nodding off there when you mentioned that, Klaus. So let's hope there will be a team being sent to the 2020 Olympics. Well, under I, I, under I, what name, though? I, I can guarantee there won't be a team going under the name Taiwan, but never mind. We'll leave that for another day. Now, former President Chen Shui-bian was back in the news this week after Japan's Sankai Shinbun published what it described as the first media interview in about 10 years with the former head of state. However, it wasn't actually an interview. Or that's what we're told, as it took the format of an unofficial forum attended by reporters and also leaders of Japan-based Chen supporter groups. Now, that's what the Taijong prison said, because, of course... Chen is out on medical parole and one of the regulations vis-a-vis his having medical parole is not to actually carry out any interviews and go to certain places and make statements. And of course there was criticism of Chen's interview that wasn't an interview but the Taipei prison said well Chen didn't actively give the interview and did not leave his residence in Kaohsiung. 
So here we go. An interview that wasn't an interview in which the former head of state called for a referendum on Taiwan independence, saying that the island can only counter China's military and diplomatic suppression with democracy. Now, according to Chen, such a referendum would show the world that Taiwan does not want to be part of China. Chen was also critical of the Tsai administration, accusing it of adopting a defensive attitude in regards cross-strait policy by insisting on maintaining the status quo that, Chen said, despite China's continuing to put military and political pressure on the island. So, Klaus, an interview that wasn't an interview. Yeah, it's clearly a loophole, isn't it? I mean, they found one, they exploited it, and now if the prison administration or the judicial system says they are okay with it, then there will be more interviews that are not interviews. And okay. if they say they're not okay with it, then they should put an end to it. I'm curious, class, as a journalist, have you put in your request to do the non-interview interview with Chen Shui-bian no. yourself? No. Have you? I'm not a journalist. <laughs> you could file it under the word in German for interview. And then they say, Gespräch, is, yeah. is, is this an interview? You can go, no. Yeah, um, I mean, the only thing I really found interesting about what Chen said here was that how would he like to phrase this referendum? I mean, debating referendum questions has been kind of a national pastime as of recently because there's so many coming up. How exactly would he want to phrase this referendum? I mean, referendum means you need to decide something that is like an instruction to the government to act upon. How would, how would you like to phrase this question standing up to China? Well, there is a, a precedent for how Chen Shui-bian phrases referendums because of the referendums that he uh, brought forward uh, to the public in 2003, um, you know, prior to the 2004 election. Uh, so for many months, these were debated, discussed, and most people still didn't understand what the referendums were asking. And hence, uh, uh, the number of people who picked up the elector, the referendum ballot on election day in 2004 failed to meet the minimum. So the result uh, would not stand no matter what the result was. Uh, so uh, it's a fair point that uh, he's designing or proposing something that is very difficult for people to understand. Sometimes politicians, and uh, I'll admit being a lawyer myself, lawyers uh, craft these questions and they, they don't appreciate that the public might not understand it. It's not because the public is, is lacking intelligence. It's just because uh, the lawyers and politicians write things in kind of political ease or legal ease. And, and it's, it's not a simple question for, for the public to understand. Uh, so uh, should he have done even done the interview? Does it violate the terms of his medical parole? I think we're going to see some ongoing argument about that. Uh, probably won't happen again for some time, though. Again, Klaus, I, I'd love to see you get one of these interviews. With, ah, it's not with an interview. Pro it's a... Gespräch. <laughs> love to see you get one of these gesprächs uh, in, in Chinese, Taiwanese, German, or English. So looking forward to that. <laughs> There's a tradition of um, Taiwanese presidents talking to German radio stations. I know. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> talking to Deutsche Welle, state to state uh, relationship. But, yeah, but again, I, I think uh, it's likely that this won't happen again for some time. I, I think the, no matter what the, the corrections authorities and Minister, Ministry of Justice are saying this week, I think they're, they're, they are not happy. They can't publicly say so because, again, we're going into elections and they don't want to alienate uh, DPP voters, many of whom still have positive uh, feelings towards Chen Shui-bian, or uh, the pos positive feelings are returning. Um, 
because of passage of time from when he was accused of corruption, he's been ill, uh, he's starting to make more and more public commentary. So his public profile has increased, and I think his favorability with DPP voters is also increasing. Uh, so they're probably reluctant to criticize him, at least now, but I, I would expect that they'll either publicly or privately at some point uh, send, send the message that they, they don't expect this to happen again for some time. What about Chen's comments about when he was critical of the Tsai administration, saying it was it was adopting a too too much of a defensive attitude in regard? Cross yeah, that's ties. that's one you can expect from him. I think. I mean, on the one hand, it's pandering to his supporters. On the other hand, it's maybe trying to defend his own legacy as being the more the more tougher the tougher one amongst the DPP presidents. But um, yeah, I think no surprise here. And that that's another reason why the the government whether it's the Ministry of Justice or other agencies, will send the signal or the message that we don't want you to do this again. We think it violates the terms of your medical parole, I mean, especially if he's going to be criticizing President Tsai, right? They, they have an incentive to, to say that this violates the terms of, of your parole. It would be a little different if he was contributing to the public discourse uh, in a more positive way. So uh, I'm going to be a little critical here, right? So he's he, he's criticizing or attacking the the government uh, going into an election season. He's supposed to be part of the team, right? He is part of the DPP team. Uh, So it would be very different if he was commenting in a more positive way, something such as, I have some ideas how to resolve the deadlock over a public policy issue, whether it was cross-strait relations or something else. But instead, he's just in attack mode, and it's not clear how it contributes positively to um, public discussion about these issues. Do you think Chen's comments could sort of somehow affect the election? People people that would vote for the DPP might might back away from certain candidates if they don't see them as following Chen's line. I think the DPP, first of all, doesn't want him back on their team, and he's kind of trying to force his way back into the public debate. But I think most people are aware of that Chen Trebian is not speaking for the current DPP leadership or government anymore, and I don't think too many people are going to conflate that. Well, th- he might not be speaking for the current leadership, but it, it is appealing to the same voters. Uh, so, Gavin, to answer your question, the the risk is more that voters stay home uh, rather than they s- desert the DPP for the KMT. Uh, maybe there's some risk that they desert the DPP for the MPP, but, but uh, that's not so much of an issue in the local election because the MPP doesn't have many candidates running, and it's for city council generally or county council. Uh, so maybe something to watch going into the national election in January 2020. Uh, but again, it, it, it's it's not helpful. If, if you're planning DPP electoral strategy and, and you want uh, enthusiastic support of your core voters, your base, especially in the regions where Chen Shui-bian has more popularity, like, like in southern Taiwan, Pingdong, Kaohsiung, Tainan. Uh, you, you want your voters to come out with enthusiasm. You want a high turnout rate and, and, to, and, and to support the DPP candidates, some of whom actually are, are facing closer elections than they had anticipated. So anything that depresses the DPP vote is, is obviously not helpful for party leadership, and it's not going to be appreciated if Chen Shui-bian has a role in that. What about his medical parole anyway? Do you think you can see this coming to an end? Do you think we get an amnesty like people are calling for? I'm not a doctor and I don't know his medical records, but um, I was just thinking what you said. Maybe is there any was there anything by Chen that he said he maybe 
had hoped for a presidential pardon and that he's now disappointed that he didn't get it, that he's out for revenge now. That Well, this issue has been hovering around Chen Shui-bian and Tsai Ing-wen's relationship for several years, ever since she, she became president or even when she was running for president. Uh, again, there there's a, a core supporters within the party, voters, personalities like legislators or uh, some of the historically uh, influential party leaders. Um, and, and they do support uh, some kind of either an amnesty or, or a pardon, uh, and and the president has been reluctant to take a position, a public position on this issue. Uh, sounds familiar, as with some other issues. Uh, but from from the again back to what we were talking about with uh, capital punishment from the administration of justice perspective. He was convicted. He he appealed. Uh, the courts have looked at this. His convictions were upheld, even if some of the, the jail sentences were reduced. He's had a very generous medical parole. Frankly, uh, we have to admit that he's received this medical parole and this ability to do the uh, increasing amount of public appearances, his commentary online, uh, s- attending events, speaking at events now. Uh, whether it's an interview or not, but clearly he spoke in a public setting. Uh, how many people in jail for similar crimes have gotten this kind of benefit? People who are ill in jail have gotten this kind of treatment. So uh, th- this has become quite a headache, and it looks like it's going to become a, a long-term headache for President Tsai because the core supporters are increasingly going to say, uh, let go of all the restrictions on him. Give him a full a full uh, pardon. And uh, it's 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 like some of these referendums that you mentioned earlier, Klaus. Right? There, there's a number of these identity issues, Taiwanese identity issues, uh, whether it's in the former referendum or uh, a pardon for Chen Shui-bian that President Tsai will have to deal with at some point. Anyway, now a group of Taiwanese students in Norway is planning to file a lawsuit against, well, the Norwegian government for changing the nationality on their residency permits from Taiwan to China. Now, according to a lawyer representing the students this week, they have currently raised about 2 million NT so far via a fundraising campaign for the first phase of the process. Now, the campaign was launched in August and the students say they hope to raise about 4.8 million NT for the four stages of legal action. Now, these students say they now expect to file a lawsuit against the Norwegian government in October at the earliest. The Norwegian government, if you're interested, first changed the residency permits from Taiwan to China in 2010. And the student's lawyer also this week said that the Norwegian government has since failed to respond to repeated protests against the name change. The lawyer also went on to say that if they lose the lawsuit against said Norwegian government, they will file an appeal with the European Court of Human Rights. Well, first of all, I don't think this lawsuit is going to go anywhere, but what it will certainly do is raise some attention for the question of Taiwan and Taiwan's status and the way European countries treat Taiwan, at least within Norway. And um, if that happens, um, that's not all bad. So what I find interesting about this is that this is not some um, official government action happening here, but it's Taiwanese citizens and in order to do that, they got a lot of crowdfunding support by other Taiwanese citizens. So maybe cases where the government, for good reasons, says, well, we don't want to go down this road. In the future, we'll see more of this, like Taiwanese supporting other Taiwanese to start cases like this to raise attention. So more crowdfunding for international publicity 
Well, but, but even though it's not being taken forward by the government, it's being taken forward by civil society organization, in this case, uh, students who are, who are studying there. Uh, the government, I believe, has said that they, they will offer support, whatever that means. Uh, maybe they'll provide some evidence about the history of the Republic of China on Taiwan or, or the history of uh, the various names that, that have been used in, in various settings, whether it's Chinese Taipei, Taiwan, ROC, ROC on Taiwan, separate customs territory, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so may, maybe the the government could provide some you know, expert testimony for this lawsuit, which may or may not be admitted by a, a court. The prosecutor, or the government's lawyers, I should say, might object because they'll say we don't recognize Taiwan. So actually, this could raise some issues that uh, don't go well for Taiwan because you're kind of forcing Norway's government to reiterate that we don't recognize Taiwan as a country. We don't have official relations. We don't have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. We have a one-China policy. And we know what often happens with with other governments, especially uh, countries whose interactions with Taiwan are somewhat limited, whether it's uh, business interactions or, or other types of interactions, when their government officials are forced, they're put in a position of having to talk about their uh, relationship with Taiwan vis-a-vis China, they often uh, don't describe it accurately, right? They don't even describe their own government's policies accurately because these policies were put in place and communiques were signed with China decades ago. And then you have a relatively new foreign policy uh, spokesperson. And then they say, well, one China policy. And they don't even describe their own one China policy uh, correctly. But often what they do describe something is a detrimental outcome for Taiwan. And and it it just upsets people here in Taiwan Mm -hmm. because you get the government of fill in the blanks, a country uh, somewhere around the world saying, well, we have a one China policy and we don't recognize Taiwan. And the way it comes out makes it sound like their government considers Taiwan to be a part of the People's Republic of China. Still, it's a fact that amongst the civil society groups, there's a tendency, some of them, to um, be willing to push further, even at the risk of causing a ruckus. I mean, you see it in this Norway case, you see it in the Olympic name change case. So there are sectors, NGOs, groups in civil society that are no longer, that are saying we don't no longer, we don't want to keep still. We don't want to see like the weight shifting in China's direction more and more. We need to do something that gets public attention as well at the risk that you just described. Yeah, but I think this is going to happen more and more often. If we see China increasing the pressure and the humiliating gestures more and more. But there's a risk here of alienating uh, governments that uh, do their best, given somewhat challenging circumstances uh, among their relations with China and Taiwan. This is the risk they're willing to take, apparently. Well, but why would you want to alienate Norway, uh, notwithstanding the fact that there's no diplomatic relations, relations are conducted uh, on a unofficial basis for trade, cultural exchange, educational exchange, just like uh, Taiwan does with many other countries. Uh, well, the, the strategy here is to reach the Norwegian public and by that way raise sympathies for their cause and have the Norwegian public put pressure on the government saying, what are we doing here? But it's very unlikely that a government of Norway or most other countries are going to change this in response to a lawsuit or even to public pressure because foreign policy decisions are not made based on uh, the demands. Yeah, but on of, the other uh, hand, they can change the, the designation they put on documents. They can change it back to Taiwan and that will not um, cause China to to start uh, any 
to really start any trouble with them. I mean, other European countries are doing that, and um, they, okay, but doing they, it by a lawsuit. Criticism. But doing it by a lawsuit is 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 a good way to alienate That's quite the drastic, Nor- yeah. Nor- Norwegian government, as opposed to uh, working with friendly legislators, members of the parliament, or, or other civil society organizations. There is another option here, which is uh, the, those Taiwanese who who live in Norway who are unhappy with this, they could leave, vote with their feet. Yeah, I mean, this is if you don't like it, then leave leave it. Argument, uh, I never liked that. It's like if you don't like Taiwan, know, class, then you just leave Taiwan. So. It happens. You, if if you're a foreigner, it's not your country, and and you don't enjoy the way you are treated, you could leave. Yeah, but with that, you can just end any discussion right there now. So, right, but like you said, we're going to take our money. We're going to go somewhere else. The money we spend here is as uh, foreign students, probably paying full price. Um, although in Europe, of course, you benefit from uh, very, very generous subsidies for, for education. Uh, but they could still, again, they could vote with their feet and say, uh, we're going to take our money to a country that's more welcoming of Taiwanese students. But then, of course, they're going to take the case to the European Court of Human Rights. Well, we don't know if they're going to, sorry to interrupt, but we don't know if they're going to accept that, right? If the court will accept the case. No, we don't. Uh, first of all, as far as I know, Norway is not even a member of the EU, so could they take it there? Um, I don't know. Let's check. But I guess if it, they take it to the European Court of Human Rights, it could take three decades or more to actually go through. And then you would get a long line of, of people from other disputed territories, right? So you're going to get you get the people from uh, uh, South Ossetia or, or, or Abkhazia, you know, other other disputed places around around Europe, uh, you know, complaining about how. Uh, European countries designate them, or you know, if you're from South Ossetia, but Norway says you're from Georgia. Uh, you, you, this is not an issue that European governments um, want to fight on. What I mean is uh, that they're not sympathetic, and, and I, I frankly think there are other ways to address this than filing a lawsuit. So I just confirmed that Norway is no member of the EU. So hey, question, hey, hey, question like, if the like Britain. Yeah, right. Get used to it. Question if the European Court of Human Law is applicable or not. That's something that the lawyers should answer. He's an American lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> anyway, we'll move on from that tricky situation to another tricky situation, that being the minimum wage, which will be increased from January next year with a monthly minimum wage raising from 22,000 to 23,100 NT. And the government says that's expected to benefit some 1.8 million employees, while the hourly minimum wage will be increased from 140 to 150 NT, with officials saying that that could benefit nearly 500,000 workers. Of course, the increases are less than labour unions had been seeking, but they're too much, apparently, for some industry groups who say that, well, you're giving them too much, because basically, if you pay these more minimum wages labour costs in the industrial sector will rise by 39 billion NT a month that's what they need to say right I mean they are on the board (laughs) and they supported this decision that's been made now of course they are still going to complain that's what's to be expected 39 billion dollars might by itself sound like a large dollar amount but obviously it's spread across uh, the entirety of the economy so uh, the numbers the the dollar amounts uh, of wage increase that you identified Gavin are clearly not very high no employer is going to go bankrupt by paying uh, this relatively small amount of increased wages however uh, that being said, especially for the industrial parts of the economy, manufacturing and 
industries that can bring in foreign labor are eligible to bring in foreign labor to work on production lines. This might uh, encourage the trend to bring in more foreign labor, though, because companies will look at the, at the specifics of the dollar amounts, and if they can replace a local employee with a less expensive uh, foreign laborer, they'll do it every time. Yeah, well, the good thing about raising minimum wage is that this money is ending up in the pockets of those on the lower end of society, and they will not in, um, save it, or they will not bring it abroad, but they will just spend it again and inject it in the local economy here. So um, that's maybe no comfort to the companies that are producing for export, you're true. So their their margin will will shrink. And let's uh, keep in mind that like so many of the other topics we've discussed today, this announcement is made right before an election. Yeah, but, <laughs> but the minimum wage has been decided on every year. So I mean... Some point in 2018, there would have been a decision. So we'll just do it two months before an election. Yeah, not one month or three months. I mean, what's the difference here? I believe they meet twice a year, the minimum wage committee. Yeah. And they did say about nine months ago, they said that the minimum wage will likely go up from January the 1st next year. So it was technically, technically it was on the cards, but the amount yeah. had to be debated. So I, I did some number crunching yesterday because I thought, well, a 5% increase sounds like a lot. And I went back, found some historical data, and I went back to 2007 and looked at the minimum wage then. And if you factor in this new increase, then the annual increase in the Taiwanese minimum wage from 2007 until 2000. Uh, until 2019 is 2.6 or 2.7%. That's how it evens out. So um, I think that sounds quite reasonable. Well, again, uh, companies are not going to go bankrupt. It's it's not going to be damaging to the economy. As Klaus said, it might even be helpful because the people who receive this increase are are going to generally spend the money. They're they're not savers. Uh, They're not people who save money at the low end of the wage scale. Uh, But Unfortunately, lost in this conversation is uh, why, why do we still have so many people in Taiwan at this stage of its economic development who are making minimum wage? Uh, is Taiwan a first world economy or a third world economy? Um, why is the, the, the average salary still so much lower than some of its neighboring countries that uh, you know, were part of uh, this rapid period of economic growth in East Asia over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, so there's some very good questions about where we are in the stage of the economy that this is even an issue from the start. Of course, there are always going to be people making minimum wage. There are always people going to be making hourly wages, university students working part-time jobs, making those hourly wages, that, and that's understandable. But why are so many workers in Taiwan still so still paid such low wages? And, and, and another part of the conversation that, that uh, is lost, I think, as well, is people People who make these low wages, very often they do receive generous other types of public benefits as well. There, there's subsidized childcare, which is something that's been in the news this week uh, for, for people at various levels of income, not just the lowest uh, end. Housing uh, subsidies is also something that's been discussed, uh, and they already exist, but, but there's proposals to give even more housing subsidies, again, as we get closer to an election. Uh, so lost in this conversation, I think, is why are so many people in Taiwan still at this end of the wage scale? Yeah, I think um, one part of that is um, the labor rights, for example. They are pretty weak in Taiwan. You don't have a strong union movement that can negotiate wages with the employers. It's basically take what we offer you or leave it. You can go, if you don't like it, go elsewhere. We know that argument. And um, even those who got a job that's not paying minimum wage, they are like afraid to stand up for their rights. They will do um, uh, unpaid overtime. They 
will not take the time off that they are entitled to. And this, of course, goes goes down the scale. Um, and then a lot of people will be willing to work minimum wage because they will be happy to take that job at all. Yeah. Where, where, do, you, where do you start to change that? You don't increase the minimum wage, then might be one strategy. You Just, don't increase it. You don't increase it because you you, know, you force people to uh, uh, improve their skills or you provide uh, public programs to help with skills development. Yeah, but the but, problem of low wages in Taiwan is that even those with skills earn uh, quite a little compared to uh, other countries. So, so they leave Taiwan and look for work elsewhere. Yeah, but we don't want we don't want workers stuck in a uh, for whatever reason uh, stuck in a. You know, a morass that they just can't get out of being at the, the lowest end of the wage scale. But because it sounds like what we're talking about here is our, our people, Taiwanese people, whose full-time employment is at this very low end of the wage scale. It's at the minimum. Um, and that I think this should be a concern to policymakers. Why are so many people uh, making that uh, that low of a wage? Yeah, so the problem is where are the jobs that require skilled work and pay better? Where, where can they be found in Taiwan? So, I mean, that's why the government is saying we go to renewable energy, um, new kinds of industry, electric mobility, whatever. So that's where they hope to create some of these jobs at least. Right, there we go. And before we go today, dining out is apparently back in fashion in Taiwan. As government No way. Dining out in Taiwan. Apparently it's back in fashion. Because no. if, if you let me get there, I'll explain why it's back in fashion. Because government data released this week showed that spending at, well, dining out, eateries and restaurants, etc., accounted for 12% of all household expenditure last year. And that, Klaus, was apparently the highest level since 1976. Maybe that just shows that restaurants are as expensive as they haven't been since 1976. Possibly, or more. I'd like to know. I looked at this and went, what was happening in 1976 where everyone was going out to eat? Anyway, according to the government, the 12% that I talked about there represents about 97,000 NT in terms of the average sum spent by every household in Taiwan going out and dining out every year. So how much do you go out then every year? Do you spend 97,000 NT going out, Klaus? At least. <laughs> No, actually, I mean, going out in Taiwan, you look at if it's more than 200 NT or less than 200 NT, that's if it's expensive or reasonable. I mean, that's the experience most of us will have. So, oh, sorry, I won't be asking you to take me out for lunch then. <laughs> Good. Well, clearly, uh, yeah, modern life, modern, modern employment, and Klaus mentioned earlier, people working long hours and overtime. Uh, Eating out is a convenience, uh, but consumer spending is also an important growing part of the economy. Uh, there, there are times in the past when people save too much money at some end of the wage scale, obviously not the people who make minimum wage. Uh, that, that's always been a concern. People save too much. Uh, they don't spend enough um, or they don't spend enough on nice restaurants. They purchase very inexpensive uh, street food, which is still widely available uh, throughout Taiwan as well at very inexpensive prices. Uh, so it's, it's actually a very positive thing for the economy for people to be spending more money uh, at nicer restaurants. Yeah, did they break it down? And like what? No. If the, if the number of restaurant visits has increased along with the expenditure, or I mean, this. No, they broke it down to they broke it down to the consumer price index figures, which basically the growth in spending at eating out also reflected in the consumer price index figures which indicated a 2.31% year-on-year growth in the dining out costs for July of this year and that was the highest in the last 39 months. Well, 
So obviously people are spending more money dining out. And, and there's also a lot of options, more or increasing number of options and more expensive options with the growth of shopping malls, for example, mm-hmm. in the urban areas, which uh, 10, 20 years ago just did not exist. Uh, but we have uh, a number of malls in the big cities now that offer an enormous amount of dining choices. Uh, there's been a growth in local corporations developing uh, chains of restaurants and you know, beyond things like convenience stores, but actual uh, sit-down restaurants. And we've seen a number of foreign brands enter the market and expand. We also periodically see some foreign brands exit the market as well. But but the number of dining options that uh, cost hundreds of NT per visit is certainly far more than it has been in the past. Uh, so this, this should be looked at as, as a positive for the economy, especially as long as the uh, inflation rate in Taiwan remains relatively stable. And generally, it, the inflation is not a problem here in Taiwan. I'm sure, though, in a few weeks from now, you will see news items saying uh, Taiwanese are cooking less and less at home. Uh, our culinary traditions are in danger. Nobody knows how to prepare their own food anymore. So that's the other side of it. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Good night. And Klaus Badenhagen. It was a pleasure, as always. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.